Over the past several years, questions of intersectionality and its place in academic research and also in politics have begun to become more prominent. Generally speaking, many people on the more conservative side of the spectrum are skeptical of intersectionality and of its usefulness to modern political discourse. However, one of my colleagues at Regent University has done something very interesting, using intersectionality to look at one of the third rails of both politics and, at times, academic inquiry, abortion. I'm Dr. Nolte, and in this episode of Blind Politics, we will talk with Professor Lynn Marie Combe about her research and what she found. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to another informative episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government and Chair of our Master's in International Development Program. Once again, views expressed in this podcast don't represent those of either the Robertson School or Regent University. Please remember you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte and on Facebook and Instagram at the normal Robertson School of Government feeds. So I'm very pleased today to be joined by a colleague of mine from the law school. She is Professor Lynn Marie Combe, who is a professor uh, specializing in family law and family policy, among other things, at the Regent University School of Law. Professor Combe, thanks for coming on the show with us today. Thanks for having me, Dr. Nolte. It's my honor. So if you wouldn't mind, just as we get started, tell our audience a little bit about some of the research that you've done in the past and particularly research around abortion and and sort of the pro-life issue. I know you've got a a deep background in that subject. Sure. So I actually started out writing about abortion to my feminist colleagues. And what I focused on there was how abortion has really harmed girls and women. So some of the first things I wrote was about sex selection abortion and the boomerang effect of women's rights to choose. Uh, William and Mary has published a lot of those because of the paradox of, you know, women promoting abortion, yet women being harmed by abortion. Another example of that would be an article that's called From Eisenstadt to Plan B that uses Eisenstadt as an opportunity or actually used Griswold as an opportunity to open up all kinds of contraception right down to Plan B, which I think can exploit girls and women. And then, but I'm also concerned about the debate, the political debate, and that we have prudence and justice involved in the pro-life debate, not just, you know, hammering people, especially hammering women. That's destructive, I think. And I started writing about abortion in the context of assisted reproductive technology, hmm. and that actually abortion is an option, even in the midst of an ART negotiation, ART, assisted reproductive technology. Um, I wrote with another colleague about how the law school environment is like an echo chamber in legal education, that you're either pro-abortion or you're pro-abortion or you're pro-abortion. <laughs> so uh, we, we just looked at family law casebooks, and there was not one that had any kind of pro-life position or any position at all, you know, protecting women who were harmed in abortion. I came back to the gender side thing when GE became really pervasive in China and India with their mobile ultrasounds Mm. because now 
all kinds of people in little third word villages could see, oh, I'm having a little girl instead of a little boy. I think I'll abort this time because I can only have one child. And then I started relating all of this. When it got to 40 years, I really started seeing all the effects in family law that abortion has had. Affects women's relationships, certainly with their husband. It really affects women's relationship with their children. A good example would be the child of Norma McCorvey, the woman who was actually the person represented in Roe v. Wade. She did not have an abortion because Texas was said it was illegal and it took three years for the case to come before the Supreme Court. So she gave her child up for adoption and that child could does not want anything to do with any of the abortion debate. So the incredible effect that it had on even Norma's relationship with her child later. Mm. And then the last thing I've done before the stuff we're going to talk about today is the vulnerability of young women to late-term abortion. There's some key studies out there by health experts and medical reproductive doctors that are pointing out that the people that are having most late-term abortions are young women, women that are in their first pregnancy and are concerned. They're, they really don't want the abortion. They really just want support. Mm from their you know, partner or their family or whatever. And they wait and wait and wait and wait until the last minute to abort. So it's really these young women, 25 and under, who are having late-term abortions. And they're doing it mainly because they don't have support, not because there's some defect with the child or their lives are in danger, but merely because they don't have support. So the, the research is all over the place on abortion right now. And this just seemed like the next piece. No, let's look at the intersectionality that abortion has. Before we get to intersectionality, I just want to zero in on a couple of things because you hit on some big topics there and, and just sort of a couple of quick follow-ups. The first, and, and this is sort of a broad question, I'm guessing there probably aren't that many people out there in the academic space that do what you do. Would that be a fair assessment? Yes, yes. And conferences I go to, I'm usually the one pro-life person that is saying, hey, let's rethink this. And usually there's silence. <laughs> and yet, and yet I've become friends with some of these, a lot of these colleagues. And one said to me a couple of years ago, she said, you know, I'm a radical pro-choice feminist, but I don't know what to do with your gender side argument. Right. <laughs> so when people are really thinking about it, they get past the politics and think, wow, you know, what's the big picture here? And that's what I try to write about the big picture. So the gender side, you know, we hear about sex-selective abortions, but you've actually done maybe a, a deep dive into the data, and I think this will sort of start to take us toward the intersectionality question. How pervasive would you say is the sex-selective abortion, you know, to, to make the determination that it's gender side? Would you maybe unpack a little bit of the data on that for us? Well, there's a lot of data in Southeast Asia, like I mentioned, China and India, but also other countries there where cultures and customs pass on to the male child everything. And without a male child, they can't carry on their family. So it becomes really huge to their culture to have a male child. The result is, you know, it's changing the dem demographics in these countries. But, you know, people still like having a little boy first. Even here in America, you know, people are like, oh, I'm so happy to get the boy out of the way. <laughs> Because they, they do feel this sense of connectivity to family. And, and, you know, girls are just as loved and just as needed. But in some cultures, they, I don't want to say paternalistic, but the desire for a boy is just really, really strong. 
Well, I'm, I'm going to be totally biased and say that having a girl first and then a boy second is totally the best way to go. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, my uh, my four-year-old is just old enough to start wanting to help out with her baby brother. And I don't necessarily feel like if she was a four-year-old boy, that would be as, as likely to happen. Never mind the thoughts of some of our folks that, that we may be reading out there who think that there's no difference between boys and girls. That's not, that's not true. Um, and so there's a, there's been some advantages for us, but no, that's, that's good to know. So it's not just, I mean, we hear about a lot in China, India, but from what you're saying, it's not just a China, India thing. There's also kind of a Western equivalent, maybe not as strong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So you start to look at this and I can, I think maybe my next question you've started to answer of you're seeing elements of class. You talked about poor women and and younger women. You're talking about obviously the gender aspect. And then as we know, and as I've discussed on the podcast before, and and I'm sure you'll break down a little bit more, there's a, a definite racial aspect in the United States to abortion policy. So what made you decide to start using intersectionality as an analytical tool and then also in your research, sort of how did you how did you define it and how did you sort of come up, come on that as something that might be useful for looking at this abortion policy issue? Great questions. So intersectionality is really just the theory that the cumulative effects of various forms of discrimination connect in complex ways right. to combine or overlap or intersect, especially in experiences with marginalized individuals or groups which is why intersectionality connects strongly with especially black feminism. Mm -hmm. So the result is that this concept is applied in the intersection of two or more identities of an individual. So an individual who is both a woman and a minority or both, you know, a child and a special ethnicity, you know, the intersection of those things or an elderly person and an, an impoverished demographic. So I started thinking about that and knew I I teach bioethics about every other year and we focus on abortion a little bit, but I was also in the midst of doing this other research on the Tulsa race massacre. And I, you know, just started reflecting on the sadness that so many black Americans have dealt with for so long. And then I started hearing some black Americans talking about the, the problem of annihilation of their race. And I thought, I got to dig into this and see what's going on. Because you look at the things like happened, like the Tulsa race massacre, and you see that, wow, 300 black people were killed by the government. And no one's ever even brought that up. And then you look at the government sanctioning of abortion and the, the statistics, and it's just stunning that three to one are the abortion of black children to white children. So I thought, how can I do this with this intersectionality? Because it's clearly black and a child. Oh, and then it came to me to try to see the unborn child as a status. Mm. It's like a minority status of any child or adult status or an elderly status. So sometimes it felt like I was squeezing a square peg into a round hole. But at the same time, I felt like, well, there are enough people that understand there's some status to a child. This is an unborn child. So that's going to be the first critique against my work, I think, is that, oh, you can't count unborn children as a status. But I do hear, because I'm writing to bioethicists, people that are thinking about life and genetics and the beginnings of life and the responsibilities of those already living towards those that are about to be born. So 
connecting it to bioethics just kind of helped me take on reproductive health advances in the context of race in a different way, in a way that might be, you know, considered practical. Well, and it also occurs to me that there's almost certainly an intersection between race and class, right? Mm-hmm. We know that there's a link between abortion and socioeconomic status. You know, the, the poorer you are, the more likely you are to be a victim of abortion. Yes. And so, I mean, that's something that even people who are pro-abortion will, will acknowledge and say is the reason why it needs to be there. So I'd imagine that's probably another point of intersection as well. Yes, that's great. And for too long, I think the sense of urgency that the people that are getting abortions are are just so, I don't want to say disparaged by, by the numbers, but they're not even, they're kind of ignored. They're kind of ignored. Mm-hmm. The sense of urgency has been missing in examining these issues. And I think the, the lack of examination has allowed it to become even more entrenched, almost accepted and tolerated. And that's kind of alarming. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. So let's, let's break down how you conducted your research. So you talked about looking at this, the statistics. So what was your process for, for doing the research and, and you know, where'd you get the data? And then also, what did you find? Yes, yeah, so I started thinking about some of the states that are trying to do bans on abortion based on race. And I thought, well, that's challenging because, you know, states are really trying to trying to get at this problem of discrimination and abortion, especially racial discrimination. But then I started realizing, well, you know, there's so many different reasons that people have abortions. And, you know, a white woman can abort a black baby. A black woman can abort a black baby. There's all kinds of different scenarios and all kinds of reasons that people are going to have to abort. So I kind of abandoned that legislative comparative and just decided to go right to the pro-abortion statistics. So Guttmacher became my most important database. And then I started looking at particularly just black scholars, you know, black scholars that are concerned about abortion. There's not that many of them. So all I did was use what I could find, which really was sadly, Dr. Nolte, kind of minimal. But Guttmacher is my reliable, my best reliable source for statistics. I also used some New York City Health Department statistics because they have the most, I'm going to use again, the word again, alarming statistics for black abortions in that city alone. Okay. So how do the, you said three to one earlier, how do the abortion rates differ for a you know black population versus white population? And then is that difference sort of also factored for things like socioeconomic status? Yes. Yeah, so black women make up actually less than 14% of the U.S. population. Oh, I also use CDC data, but the evidence shows that 36% of all abortions abort babies of black women. So 27.1 of every 1,000 black women will have an abortion, whereas only 10 of every 1,000 white women have abortions. Wow. In 2014, 18.1 of every 1,000 Hispanic women received an abortion. So that's higher than white women, but still so much lower than black women. The most recent numbers in 2019 show a decline in abortion from 2011, but nationwide today, black women terminate their pregnancies at a rate five times that of white women. For Latinas, the rate is more than double that of non-Latina whites. And these are really startling differences. And I think they reflect equally starting differences, startling differences in the rate of unintended pregnancy. 40% of white women's pregnancies are unintended compared with well over half among the two other groups. 
Unintended, of course, doesn't mean necessarily unwelcome, mm -hmm. but it can sometimes mean disaster for, as you mentioned, the impoverished mother. And the difference in the rates raises questions about barriers to access to contraception, not only financial, but cultural. It's too complex to be discussed in just a soundbite, but the numbers alone are just so compelling. 19 million black children have been aborted since 1973, according to 2020 statistics. 19 million people is a lot of people. Yeah, That could make a difference in so many areas. We, For example, just, just in elections, we talk about the black voting block. Well, we're missing almost 20 million people right. from that block. Not to mention, you know, all the intangible intellectual property we could have lost from those 20 million people, as well as all the input into the economy. Just a lot of loss with 20 million people of any group, and certainly a loss to that group. I once actually looked at the Jacobson's data, Tom Jacobson's abortion world report, their, U their U.S. data, and I calculated back to 1973 and was looking at African-American abortion rates as compared to the, to the nation. And I figured, you know, based on sort of rough back of the envelope math, I'm not a math guy, but based on that, that absent abortion, the black percent of the population of the United States would be 2% higher in the whole. So that kind of puts it in, in a similar, in a similar context there. It does. So... I know one of the things that some folks in the pro-life movement have talked about is sort of zip code analysis. So that if you look at zip codes where there are Planned Parenthoods, they tend to highly correlate with heavy black or minority populations. Was that something that you looked at as well or, or not really? I didn't really get into it that much. No, I think I just looked at the big picture. I was just so alarmed and thought everyone should be alarmed yeah. by this glaring racial disparity. And I feel like bioethicists and the people thinking about the beginning of life are really a key audience for this because, you know, this, I wanted to capitalize too on all the scholarly discussion and academic interplay with racism that's been going on these last two years and just wanting to end racism. I'm like, well, this is one area that definitely needs to think about ending racism. Race selective abortion is a fairly new concept, as I mentioned, talking about the legislation, but you know, women decide to get abortion for lots of reasons. So I think that'd be a great area for further research, the whole zip code idea. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a talking point that you hear. And I know some of the pro-life advocacy organizations have, have looked at it to a certain extent, but I don't know the extent to which it's really been, you know, somebody's dove into the data at that academic level. So have you had a chance to discuss any of this with, with some of your more you know, feminist colleagues or you, know, you talked about black fem feminism before or anything like that. Is this research that you've talked about with, with some of those folks? And, and if so, has there been any kind of reaction? I have. So I presented a different article in Chicago two summers ago, and it, the room was full of my colleagues who are feminist pro-choice activists. And I particularly tried to speak to the, the black scholars in the audience and one who was at that time at, at Princeton. And I remember, you know, just bringing this up in total silence. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's almost like I shouldn't be talking about it. Right. At the same time, I, you know, obviously you try to be extremely sensitive because this is really a touchy issue. I mean, women have abortions for all kinds of reasons. I don't think black women have abortions because their babies are black. Right. But there's some racial disparity with these numbers that I think is going to take more research to get at. And as I was speaking with that one young woman that day, I remember kind of 
you know, I brought it up and asked her thoughts and it was, she didn't know what to think. And I think people just don't want to step on toes and it does take more research. You're absolutely right about that. It's going to need more research. It's a sensitive area. It's so politically charged and abortion is just that political, what do I want to say? Third rail. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the thing that matters more than anything. And so to challenge it is really sort of taboo unless you have the guts to think it through. Like I'm just thinking the example is Abby Johnson, mm-hmm. you know, the woman who worked at the abortion clinic herself had several abortions, two abortions, I think one of them was a chemical abortion. So she had personal firsthand experience with it. Plus she was always counseling people. And then when it finally hit her, it was a big deal for her to like admit it because it means you have to change your whole life if you've been pro-choice all along. So I'm, I'm curious, this is somewhat, somewhat unrelated, but you have a lot more interaction, I'm going to guess, with pro-choice feminist scholar type folks than I do, or probably than a lot of, of our listeners. What's your assessment of where the commitment to sort of abortion as a sine qua non for women's rights comes from? Because it doesn't seem to me like that would necessarily logically follow that this is something that would be sort of the keystone of of women's rights. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts, you know, not, not necessarily playing like intellectual history or anything like that, but more in the, in the worldview of these folks, why is this something that has become such an important, almost like a totem for it or touchstone? Yeah. So I think in the whole world of seeking to achieve gender equality, the biggest inequality is the burden that's placed on women for gestating and birthing children. It is a burden. But my husband and I joke about it that really it's a superpower Yeah. <laughs> because it's an amazing thing to bring a whole new life into an existence. And yet the feminist thought is that, well, that puts a burden on us rather than an opportunity and it stops us. It kind of closes all these other doors. And, and in reality, a lot of women have not been hired because they're pregnant or going to have babies. But, you know, even though that's against equal employment opportunity laws, it still happens without being stated. So I think that's the thinking, you know, gender equality must rely on the ability to have an abortion so that you don't have to be pregnant. At the same time, like I said, I think it's a superpower. But when you look at feminist legal theory, you know, I think that should be protecting the lives of black women and children. Right. And yet that discrimination comes at all kinds of angles. Rather, the theory seems to be controverted with this intersectionality to have almost surrendered or forfeited black lives to its own theory, but it's okay because we need abortion so we can be equal. So I might be misinterpreting that, but that's probably my best assessment of why it's so important. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. It seems to me that if you're in the name of equality, seeking to erase the most, I would say profound, biological difference between men and women it's almost like okay so if, if you're if you're trying to create equality by erasing the thing that makes women most distinct from men at what point do we say is this really feminism i guess would be the question that that i would ask and maybe that's more of a 
a broad philosophical question that we can't answer in a, in a podcast. Yes. And that, that actually goes to a whole lot of things happening right now with gender dysphoria and gender transition. But yeah, I would say that, you know, the whole critical race theory, the, the critical gender theory, all those things kind of come full circle in that, ah, well, you know, separating yourself from your reproductive abilities is really releasing you from oppression. Yeah. And I, I know this is true for um, liberation of black women yet the very perception misses the alarming disparity in numbers of abortion of blacks. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember a couple of years ago, I was just browsing through some, some book titles and there was a black feminist book that was called killing the black body. And it was not about abortion. And I was like kind of shocked in the sense of you're being that open about something that's going on, but not talking about the single factor in the United States today that is responsible for the greatest number of actual deaths of, of black bodies. And it's just this weird sort of cognitive dissonance, or like you said, almost a, a sort of imposed or self-imposed perhaps silence. Now, I bet that book did focus on aspects of contraception, mm-hmm. like sterilization, forced sterilization, yeah, things like that, which have happened in the past and actually lends to the distrust by the African-American community of the whole medical system. But abortion is one of those areas where we cast away that trust. Right. Because this is so important that we level the playing field on reproductive oppression. Yeah. I guess in a sense, if you take certain assumptions, it makes sense. But I don't know. Much broader philosophical questions that could come from that. But I want to take things back a little bit to more your field of uh, some of the legal studies. So... I recently did a podcast on the Texas heartbeat bill, uh, just kind of trying to break down what's going on with that. And mentioned in there, of course, you have Jackson versus Dobbs, which is the case in Mississippi where the attorney general of Mississippi quite comprehensively briefed on why, you know, she thought Roe should be repealed. Pro-life female attorney general from Mississippi. And so with all of this going on, I'm kind of curious from, you know, the the amount of, of legal work that you've done looking at abortion. What do you see as sort of the future of abortion law and policy? How much of, of what's going on do you think changes that? And do, have you seen any shifts in terms of abortion policy in the United States? Are there any that you're sort of keeping an eye on? Well, Dobbs really has gotten tons of attention because of the things that you have said. I'm actually looking at an article right here that Robbie, Robert George has written in First Things about Roe will go. Hmm. And he seems very confident that Dobbs alone can overturn Roe. I'm a UFC fan, and as Dana White always says, don't leave it in the hands of the judges. While we have a court that seemingly was packed by you know pro-life appointees from the previous administration, I don't know. I don't trust judges. Which is why you also see states trying to remedy that using a Casey analysis. You know, Casey allowed for some limits on abortion based on the state interest to protect the welfare of its citizens. So they're using that, like with Texas, with the heartbeat bill and, you know, how far can we go to protect unborn life? Personally, Dr. Nolte, I'd I'd love to see more that protect women, Mm -hmm. more bills that protect women because, gosh, there's so much forced abortion right now, coerced abortion, that I don't think we ever really talk very much about. 
whether it's from parents that don't want their child to have a child to ruin her life or a boyfriend that takes the mom to the abortion clinic or sex traffickers that kind of have a cover when they have a connection with a local abortion clinic. And there's a whole lot of coerced abortion going on right there. And there is a couple of briefs, but one in particular that was submitted as an amicus to the Dobbs case that points out the testimony of women harmed by abortion. And that, I think, is something that could get a lot of play. I think they had testimony from more than 450 women who said, look, here's what happened to me. I'm now sterile, or this happened and that happened. So actual women's experiences. So the future, I don't know. I don't want to leave it in the hands of the judges. I would like to be hopeful about Dobbs, but I I see the Texas route becoming probably more likely because people have a little bit, voters have a little bit more control maybe in their state electorate. And, you know, if the pro-life lobby is strong in a state like it is in or Mississippi or Texas, then they're going to be, you know, using that, the pro-life position, as a means to choose those who they're going to elect. At the same time, you know, I don't know what the what's going to happen with the Texas heartbeat bill, because right now the Biden administration is suing Texas over that. And I'm so proud of our region graduates who are in these places in Mississippi and Texas who are working to defend their state's right to be able to create laws that will protect women harmed by abortion or children who can feel pain during the abortion. It seems to me like the uh, the forced abortion, analyzing that from a, a critical gender theory perspective, could be another uh, another article for you down the line. <laughs> it sure could. It sure could. So you're right. There's a ton of articles that can come out of this one. And this one, if your listeners want to find it, it's called The Intersectionality of Race and Class and Bioethics. And it's available for free, downloading on the Social Science Research Network. My last name is K-O-H-M. You'd find it under my author page. You know, it's just, you're right, Dr. Nolte, it gives all these opportunities for more research, further research. My goal was just to to nudge bioethicists in a way that said, hey, look, you know, your field is considering racism in the scholarship you publish or don't publish. How about racism in this area? Uh, Those are the gatekeepers. And I think it's intriguing, too, because you've got, you know, intersectionality is something that general conservatives would say, oh, no, that's all bad. But here you've actually used it to analyze something that, really is a, a policy issue that nobody's talking about and, and certainly nobody from within that paradigm. I think there are problems with intersectionality if you take it at a super broad level and try to use it to analyze everything, but that doesn't mean that it can't analyze some things and that conservatives can't actually use it, you know, like you've done with with abortion to look at some of these these disparate impacts, you know, of policies that, you know, folks would say, oh, these policies are designed to help minority communities or, or people that are marginalized, but actually do they help or do they do more more harm than, than help? So I'm glad that you're out there, you know, doing this this research and, and maybe bringing together research methods with issues that, that people wouldn't necessarily associate with one another. Yeah, it's an honor. <laughs> I think the, the debate should be way more robust than it is. But again, you know, we're in a culture that people are afraid to speak up. And, you know, it takes it takes work to, you know, just think about how these theories that are being espoused in so many different fora really apply in a different way than they're being mentioned. So, All right. Well, thanks for coming on and, and doing the podcast with us. And 
maybe we will also see if we could put a, a link to the article in the show notes as well so that people can go and, and download that. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for doing this podcast. Absolutely. And that's going to be a wrap for us this afternoon. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider and let us know that you like the podcast and uh, you know which, which episodes on the Facebook page. So for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off.